open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I want you to think for a second. If I was to talk to some of your friends or family members, what would they say you are known for? Don't raise your hand and you could just answer that to yourself. Maybe it's a, a funny story, a, a funny quirk that you have, something you tend to do. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's being a mom or being a dad. Maybe it's a hobby that you have. Maybe it's a certain characteristic or a personality trait. Maybe your humor, you're known for being funny. Maybe you're known for looking funny. I, it's up to you. I, again, we don't judge. What are you known for? As we've walked through this letter of 1 Corinthians, and as we continue through, we're about halfway through now, one of the things I've seen a lot of is that it seems like the Corinthians really wanted to be known for something. They wanted to be known for being a great church. They wanted to be known for being just these amazing Christians. They wanted to be known for how much they knew. They were just really smart as Christians. And they wanted to be known for how spiritual they were. That they were just amazingly close in their relationship with God. Now these things on the surface may not sound too bad. It's good to want to be known for our relationship with God. The problem comes in in how we go about that. Today, we're starting a section that's going to run chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And so we're going to deal with it in three sections. Uh, we'll do chapter 8 today. We'll do chapter 9 next week. And surprise, surprise, we'll do chapter 10 the week after that. Uh, and actually, Mark Valake's going to che- uh, teach on chapter 10 in two weeks. And the whole thing is around a particular issue that they were struggling with. It actually, maybe I should say they weren't struggling with it, but they should have been. They thought they had all the answers. And it was the issue of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I know when you hear that, immediately you just think, this is so relevant to my life right now. I was thinking about this just this week. What do I do? Should I eat the food that was sacrificed to idols? How many of you have ever been tempted to eat food that was sacrificed to idols? Yeah, me neither. So here's the problem, right? Here's the struggle as a preacher. How do we take this extremely relevant cultural thing to their time and make it relevant to us, all right? So that's my goal today, is to show some of these transferable principles. Now, the way Paul's going to deal with this, let me just lay this out. Chapter 8, he's going to introduce the subject and give us some general teaching, kind of a motivation for how we are to deal with this. And I think we're going to find a lot of good stuff there and things that we can apply to our lives today. Then in chapter 9, he's going to use himself as an example. He's going to say, look, I live this way in my ministry. This is how I go about doing my ministry and my life. This is how I love people. And then in chapter 10, he's going to give some more teaching and some very specific application to their settings. Now, I've called this kind of three-part mini-series within the saturated series on 1 Corinthians, Lovingly Limiting Freedom, because that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a situation where the Corinthians, as Christians, are free to do something. What they want to do is not necessarily or inherently wrong. 
So this isn't a sin issue. They believe in their relationship with Christ, they have the right to do something. And they're right about that. But Paul comes to them and he says, but that's not enough. It's not enough just to be right. That's a good thing for us to learn. That's a good thing for us to apply to our own lives, to say being right is not enough. We need to go beyond that. And we need to be loving. So he's going to say, for the purpose of the gospel, for the purpose of loving other people, for the purpose of pointing them to Jesus Christ, they need to limit their freedom, give up some freedoms, so that they can show love to others. That's part of what it means to be saturated with the gospel. We've talked about this before. This is kind of our theme in 1 Corinthians, that when you take a sponge and you wring it out, whatever it's saturated with is, is what just overflows, what pours out. And if we have Christ in our lives, He is pouring into us. Our lives are saturated with Him, saturated with the good truth of His salvation. And then that overflows into all of our actions, all of our attitudes, all of our encounters, all of our relationships, everything in our lives. When people poke us, when we're hurt, when we're struggling, when we're happy and overjoyed, whatever it is, it's the gospel that should overflow, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. So how do we express that and overflow the gospel by lovingly limiting the expression of our freedom at times? And that's what Paul is going to do here. So let's look at chapter 8. And I would like to read the whole chapter, just to set it in front of us, and then we'll walk through bit by bit. All right, so you can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV. That's what's in the pew in front of you, uh, unless somebody left their Bible there. (laughs) But it should be uh, the NIV. But if you have another translation, that's fine. And again, I'll say it. If you don't have a Bible, if you're here, take ours. Just take it home. That's free. We'd love for you to take it and use it or give it away as a gift. Uh, As long as somebody gets into God's word, that's what's important. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now again, at first glance, this doesn't seem very applicable to us. But I do think we face situations all the time where we wonder, how do I live as a Christian in this situation? How do I go into a a secular place of work filled with people that just don't care about Christ and live out the gospel there? How do I go home to my family who doesn't care about Christ and live out the gospel there? How do I get involved in our community when people just don't care about the gospel? How do we live out the gospel in those situations? So while you may never have been offered food that was given to an idol, I'm guessing you face situations all the time about asking yourself, how do I live out the gospel here and now? And that's what this applies to. So let's look first. Paul talks about what I'm going to call the goal. What is the goal of our actions in these situations? And he says... He starts off and he says, now about food sacrifice to idols. So let me just help us to understand a little bit of cultural background. Because the more we understand what they were dealing with, the better we can bring it to today and say, well, this is a similar situation that I'm facing. So we have to understand in that culture in general, most of the food and certainly most of the meat that was sold at the local grocery store, at the local market, would have first been offered as worship to a god or goddess. It would have been brought by the the vendor, the farmer, whatever it is, as an act of worship, as an act of thanks. It would have been offered, it would have been cut up, and then what wasn't used in the sacrifice itself would have been turned around and sold in the marketplace. So you were almost guaranteed, if you went into the marketplace in Corinth and you bought some food, especially meat, you could be almost 100% certain that that had been used in an act of worship to an idol. Well, that puts you in a rough place as a Christian, doesn't it? As someone who believes God is the one true God, Jesus Christ is his son and the only way of salvation, well, now you're saying, I'm eating food that was given as an act of worship to something I don't believe in. What do I do? But it goes a little bit farther than that. You see, at the temples, part of their their social fabric, part of their community gatherings, they would gather at the local temple. I'm not talking about the Jewish temple. I'm talking about the Greek or Roman temple to Aphrodite or Athena, whoever it was. And they would get together and they have a big old backyard barbecue. But the point of the barbecue was to worship the god or goddess. And so people would gather so they would meet people in town. It's where they would say hi. It's where they would make their connections. And so now for the Christian, if they're not allowed to go to that, They might miss out on some of the community happenings that are going on. They may not be able to raise up in status because they're not networking and hobnobbing with the important people of the city. So what are they to do? There's a couple different levels here. So that's one. There were feasts that were specifically held to worship the god or goddess. Another level that historians aren't really sure if this took place, but there's some evidence that it was, it's possible there were some banquets that took place at the temple that weren't necessarily for worship. It was just a large gathering place. So was it okay for a Christian to go to that if it wasn't an act of worship? But there's another level that I think even gets harder. You see, if you were invited into somebody's home, 
that person probably bought the meat or the food in the marketplace and it had been sacrificed to the idol. But it could go even deeper than that. That person may have offered the food first and they were eating it as a family as an act of worship to that god or goddess. And now they've said, hey, why don't you come over to our house for dinner? And you are going over to a house where they are eating as an act of worship to the God they believe in that you don't. Well, this puts a Christian in a very awkward situation, doesn't it? It's going to be offensive to say no. One lower level below that, again, like I said earlier, all the food in general, or most of it, had been offered to a god or a goddess. So even if the the family wasn't eating it as an act of worship, they knew where it came from. And they may be serving it to you, and you may be participating in eating food that was offered to an idol without even knowing it. So there's sort of these layers of very public worship all the way down to private worship, almost a secular setting that kind of has a religious overtone, down to maybe people just sharing a meal and not caring. So how was the Christian in Corinth supposed to interact and have these relationships? Look at what he says. We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. The Corinthians were addressing this issue by saying, hey, Paul, we're pretty smart. We know this. We've got this. We know a thing or two. And Paul enters into that, and he sort of says, as he has all along in Corinthians, yes, but let's be careful here. And look at what he says. And this is where we get this idea of what is the goal. Because he says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So he's giving them two options. He's saying, what is your goal here? Is it to look good? Is it to puff yourself up? Is it to inflate your ego so everybody sees how awesome you are? Is it to point all the fingers to you to say, look at me as a Christian. Look how smart I am. Look how free I am in Christ. Because it seems that most of the Corinthians, or at least so-called knowledgeable ones in Corinth, were saying, we know the idol is nothing. So we can freely go to the temple and eat. We can freely participate in these meals. We can eat anything we want because we know that idol doesn't even exist. It's just food. So come on, let's eat it. No big deal. Now, some of that knowledge may have been colored by the social pressures. This knowledge may have been in a a way to give in to say, I have to be there. Do you understand what's going on? Do you understand the contacts I can make there? Do you understand the networking, my business? I have to be there. Because there was a lot of pressure surrounding all of this. So Paul says, look, you can either focus on being puffed up or you can focus on building up others. What's your goal? Is it yourself? Or is it to pour into and build up other people? And Paul gives some dangers to knowledge. He says knowledge puffs up. We already talked about that. And and I think there's a, a great danger in there, and I'll use the contemporary illustration of the balloon. As the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger, what happens at some point? It pops, breaks, it bursts. And doesn't that happen sometimes with people that are so puffed up with their own knowledge? At some point, they might get into a situation where somebody else is smarter. At some point, they might get into a situation where something they've learned was wrong, and it pops. 
And so all that stuff that you've been working for and you've been building up, it just evaporates. That's one danger. Another danger in verse 2 is that we never know everything. To rest on our knowledge and act like we know everything is like saying we see history from the beginning to end and we've got it all covered and we know it all. The person who's truly wise in Scripture is often the one who understands the limits of his own knowledge. There's a great danger in thinking we know everything because only God knows everything. And only when Christ comes back will we see everything. So we need to have a proper attitude. And then in verse 3, whoever loves God is known by God. Now that's a really interesting phrase. We would expect whoever loves God knows God, right? Wouldn't that fit the pattern? And yet Paul twists that. Because what he's saying is, look, what's important is not how much you know about God, but whether God knows you. Because in Scripture, to be known by God is to be saved. It's for him to have reached out to you and save you and bring you into a relationship with him. And that is his doing, his effort, his power, his authority, his sovereignty. So Paul is right away saying, guys, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking to yourself. You should be looking to and trusting in God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 through 23, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. It matters more that God knows you. And we know that God knows us through Jesus Christ. True knowledge keeps focus on God, his power, his sovereignty, not on us. Now, before we go further, I feel it's important to give a clarification here. I I feel it's important to, to explain something. Because... This passage may make it seem like we shouldn't try to know things, like knowledge somehow isn't important. And this is where the rest of Scripture is so helpful. The problem in Corinth was that they had an overinflated sense of knowledge, and Paul is trying to correct that. Okay? Sometimes we read something that's trying to correct something else, and we say, oh, this applies to every situation equally, so we just shouldn't focus on knowledge. We should just, oh, who cares? I don't need to read my Bible. I just need to love people. Paul would have none of that. So let me just throw out a couple things. You can write these down if you want to. In Ephesians 1, 17 through 23, Paul prays that the Ephesians would know God better. This summer, we're going to do a sermon series on the prayers of Paul. And I can't wait to get to these because the things he prays for are amazing. And one of the things he prays for over and over is a depth of knowledge in Christ followers. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, he also prays that they may grasp or know the love of Christ. And in verse 19, it says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And I love that. You should know something that you'll never possibly even get to the end of, but keep knowing it. Keep going. 
In Philippians 1.9, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Colossians 1.9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Colossians 2.2, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Does Paul think that Christians should not know anything about God? No. Does Paul have a high view of knowledge for the Christian? Absolutely. Okay? So I want to make sure as we walk through this, we're not putting down knowledge. The question is not what they knew. It was what they were trying to be known for. They wanted to be known for being smart. The issue is the goal. And the goal should be to love others. But in order to love someone, you have to know truth. Because how do you know if your expression of love is actually true and accurate if we don't have the standard of God's truth? And that's what Paul goes to next. He talks about the truth that they need to know, and that they're saying they do know. Verses 8 through, I'm sorry, 4 through 6. He talks about this concept that there is only one God. This was so fundamental to the Jewish faith. It was absolutely at the core of it. In fact, the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it was just the core statement of the Jewish understanding because they lived in a situation where all these other nations worshipped all these other gods and they said, nope, there is one God and nothing else exists. These other gods, they're nothing. They're just lies. We believe in one true God and that's what Paul is tying into and that's what they were tying into and saying, look, an idol's nothing. There's no God but one, so who cares that somebody barbecued a a I know, I wanted to say a hamster. Somebody said it. Remember the newsboys? That's why I was tripping up, because I was thinking barbecued a hamster. If you don't know what that is, you miss the great music of uh, the Christian music of the 80s and early 90s, and you're probably the better for it. Uh, <clears throat> there's a line about barbecuing a hamster. So, um, no, they didn't care that the meat had been offered to an idol because they didn't believe the idol meant anything. So that was the knowledge that they had. But it's interesting because Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 was quickly followed by, because there is one God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And do you remember later when somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? He said that, and then he said, and the second is like it, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he said the love of God is intimately and intricately linked to our love for others. It's not enough to just have knowledge. Even the truth tells us that. And look at what he says then. About God, he says, from whom all things came. They believe God was the source and the creator of everything. And as Christians, we must still believe this today. It is a powerful statement about who God is. This was something, again, in the Jewish world, they would have totally have understood and said, Amen. And then he said, and for whom we live. God is not only the creator, but he is the purpose. Our purpose for existing is to bring 
glory and worship to God. We exist for him. Now look, often as Christians, we want to flip that around. Oh, God's here to help you. Oh, God's here to make your life fun. God's here to make your life happy. We want to make it like God exists for us. That's wrong. We exist for God. And the truth is, we are far happier, far joyous, far more joyous, far more free when we understand we exist for him and not the other way around. It's all about him. But then Paul does something. In this passage where he's, in a sense, downplaying knowledge, he gives one of the most important truths in Christianity. Look at the end there of verse 6. So he just said, God the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. This is one of the clearest statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. He has just laid out the Jewish truth of their understanding of God. There is one God. He made all things and all things exist for him. And then Paul said, and Jesus Christ is right there with him. God made all things for himself through Jesus. All things exist to glorify God and they only do that through Jesus this is right in line with John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So, in a passage where Paul is saying, look, we shouldn't be just focusing on our knowledge, he's clearly saying, but we do need to know truth. We need to know who Jesus Christ is. But love applied without truth is dangerous. If we seek to love someone without any truth, it's very dangerous because it can end up being selfish. It can end up being wishy-washy. It can end up just trying to seek whatever makes that person happy, and that might actually be worse for them. But now he's going to deal with the flip side of this. Truth applied without love is also dangerous. So let's look at verses 7 through 8. At how Paul now says, okay, here's the knowledge. We have truth of who Jesus is, of who God is. He's the one and only true God. Nothing else matters. He says, but don't stop there. Verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. He says, look, you know what you know, and that's good. But now you need to consider the person next to you. You need to consider the neighbor across the street. You need to consider the Christian among you who is struggling and the non-Christian who doesn't even know the gospel. We can't just go into this society saying, well, it's true, that's just the way it is. I'm just going to beat everybody over the head with it and they can deal with it. He says, no, you need to consider the other person. That's the consideration we need to have as we express our knowledge and apply our knowledge. And what he does in the issue of food sacrifice to idols, he says, look, for some people in that culture, eating that food was absolutely connected to worshiping that idol. So here's this so-called mature Christian saying, I can eat whatever I want, it doesn't matter. And here's this other person that hasn't quite gotten there yet, saying, if you eat, you are worshiping. Paul says, have you thought about that? He says, now, in that context, 
Think about what your action is going to do to that person. You're going to eat, and they're going to see you and say, it must be okay to worship. So I'm going to worship the idol too. Because if that really mature Christian can do it, it must be okay for me. Do you see the problem here? Now, again, because we're so far removed from this, we may not understand the seriousness of this, but look at how Paul talks about this. Let's go to verses 9 through 13. Because Paul talks about the application. Let's put this into process. How do we apply knowing the truth, considering the people we're talking to, but now how are we going to apply it? And in verse 9, he says, be careful. This is a stern warning. This is not just kind of, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, we kind of need to think about others. This is warning, danger. There's a huge issue here. And then look at what he says. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, we read that phrase, stumbling block, and we think of it in terms of somebody stubbing their toe, right? Maybe we kind of trip somebody up, but they're going to keep going and they'll be okay. That's not what this passage means. The word here for stumbling block is to fall flat on your face and to fall so hard you cannot get up. In spiritual terms throughout Scripture, this phrase is used for one who is not saved and is destined for hell. Now read that passage with that in mind and think about the seriousness of this. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to the idol? The issue here we need to understand is not the food. It has very little to do with the effect of the food on the person. It has everything to do with the motivation. These people could be led into worshiping a false idol instead of worshiping Jesus Christ. Do you understand the seriousness of that? For the Christians who thought they were so mature, this should have caused them to weep, to say, wait a minute, I'm in my expression of believing in the one true God, I might be causing somebody to stumble so greatly they can't even get back up. That's serious. We need to be careful. Look at verse 11. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died. This kind of goes back to our consideration and our love for the other person. You know, when you're dealing with anybody, it really helps to look at them through the lens that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, all-sovereign, all-powerful, willingly hung on a cross to die for that person, to pay the price for their sin so that they may have a relationship with him. Boy, how would it change how we look at other people if we looked at everybody through that lens? How would it change how we love them? And Paul here is saying, Christ died for this person and you are trying to destroy them. And I'm sure at this point, the people are saying, whoa, whoa, Paul, we're just eating food, man. It's just a meal. It's just a barbecue. We got an invite. We went. What's the big deal? And Paul's saying, it's a huge deal. Your actions have consequences. 
you're looking in the wrong direction. You're so busy patting yourself on the back for your own knowledge, you're not looking to the people standing next to you and saying, am I loving them or am I hurting them? Because let's be honest. I bet right now we could all think of some Christian brothers and sisters who in their expression of what they think is right are hurting a lot of people. And sometimes we think that our knowledge of theology gives us the right to be mean and just beat people up. And Paul says, no, that's not the goal. True Christian knowledge will always, always be applied in love. Otherwise, it's not real Christian knowledge. Because our fundamental belief is in one who, though he was God, left aside his majesty, took the form of a servant, suffered and died in our place so that he could save us. He claimed no knowledge for himself. He claimed no authority for himself. He didn't force people to bow down and worship him. He loved them. So what do we do with this? In John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus said this as he was preparing to go to the cross. He said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's what I think we should take away from this passage. Our highest goal in our interactions with other people should be to love them. That's the standard by which we should judge our actions. Are we being loving? Now, we have to be careful there because our world says loving someone means doing what they want, right? And that puts us in an awkward position because Christian love must always be based on truth. To know truth and to fail to share it or to fail to point somebody to truth is not loving. So we don't give up truth in our our hope to love people. We run after truth. We cling to truth so that we can be more loving. Do you see the difference there? As Christians, we've, we've put these two things at odds with each other. Well, I can either, either be knowledgeable and truthful or I can be loving. So I guess I'll choose to be loving. No. Be knowledgeable and truthful and then live in an expression of love. Because that's who Jesus was. That's how he lived. He is our greatest example. So the goal is love. Truth must always be the basis for our love. And love must always consider the other person. We don't just go through life with our blinders on saying, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? Well, I'm right here. I'm wrong here. I guess I'm doing okay at the end of the day. Check myself against God. We say, no, wait a minute. There's people next to me. Am I loving them? Man, if we get to heaven and we've just checked all the boxes of righteousness and we've just done all the the things that God wants us to do, is that enough? Because he said a new command I give to you, love one another. We need to live and act in love. So the goal is love. Truth must always be the basis for love. Love considers the other person. And the application or the demonstration of our love may require that we limit our own freedom. Now, 
in the United States of America today, this doesn't preach well. We believe in freedom. Man, we celebrate our freedoms as we should. They've been hard fought and hard won by people that have given their lives for us. But as Christians, our greatest rallying cry should never be our freedom. It should be the gospel. I think the world is getting an earful of American Christians screaming about our freedom. You know what? We should be saying, if you want to take my freedom so that the gospel is demonstrated, go for it. Because I know, and you need to know, that the truth is, our freedom's in Jesus Christ. It's not in the United States of America. It doesn't matter what laws are passed. It doesn't matter what things are changed. It doesn't matter what is redefined. Our truth is, we serve Jesus Christ. And nothing this world does can change that. So we need to look at the people around us and say, am I loving them? Before you hit post on Facebook, ask yourself, is this loving? Am I showing love? Before you send that vicious email to somebody to give them a piece of your mind and put them in your place, just stop. Am I loving them? Am I loving them the way Christ loved me? See, you may not be faced with eating food sacrificed to idols. But every day you are faced with situations where you're pointing to something. You're either pointing to Christ or, quite frankly, we're pointing away from Christ. And we need to say, am I applying love in the right way even if it requires limiting my freedom? In chapter 9, Paul's going to talk about how he lives this way. And it is a profound example. In chapter 10, he's going to get to the end. And if you would, just turn to chapter 10 at the end. Verse 31, because he really sums this all up. Chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There's the great calling. Bring glory to God in everything you do. But he doesn't stop there. Do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, listen to this, but the good of many so that they may be saved. That's love. Are your actions and your attitudes pointing to the gospel or away from it? What are you known for? I hope as Christians... It would be love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, even as I preach this, I think of how, how far short I fall so often. My own sin and my own selfishness gets in the way and, and sometimes just my own stupidity and not thinking through these things. And God, I'm guessing that applies to all of us here. And Father, these things are tough. These are not easy to apply in every situation. So grant us wisdom. Help us to so know you that when situations come up, we can apply that truth and that knowledge in a loving way. And then give us a heart that overflows with the gospel of your love for people. God, help us to be loving and to be known for love. Because ultimately, when people say, why are you this way? We could say, let me tell you about the one who loves me. Let me tell you about my Jesus.
In your name we pray. Amen.